Good afternoon, and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. People of faith and our institutions have come under increasing attack in recent years from secular sources. One point of contention is part of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. The act requires religious nonprofit organizations and institutions to provide free birth control, including abortion-inducing drugs, to their employees and students. Failure to comply with these requirements can result in heavy penalties. This requirement stands despite violation of religious convictions. A number of religious institutions are fighting back. They filed suit against the Obama administration's mandate, and the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed as of last November to hear the case involving Southern Nazarene University and three other universities in Oklahoma, along with Pennsylvania's Geneva College and five other institutions. Arizona-based Alliance Defending Freedom has agreed to help the Supreme Court is expected to hear the arguments in spring. ADF Chief Counsel Greg Baylor is our guest today on Free to Be Faithful, and he'll discuss why these cases are before the Supreme Court, how they differ from the Hobby Lobby case, and the nationwide implications of the ruling. Most importantly, what impact the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia will have on the case. Scalia was a strong supporter of religious liberty, and his passing leaves the high court dangerously divided when it comes to the free exercise of religion. Free to be faithful encourages our listeners to ask questions. Our telephone number in the greater St. Louis area is area code 314-821-0850. Outside the St. Louis area in North America, the toll-free number is 800-730-2727. The program may also be contacted by email at townsquare at kfuo.org. On the phone with me is Mr. Greg Baylor, who is with the Alliance Defending Freedom. Mr. Baylor, could you tell us a bit about yourself and about your organization? I'd be glad to. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. I'm delighted uh, to be with you today. My organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, is an alliance-building legal organization that advocates for the right of people to freely live out their faith. Our mission is to keep the doors open for the gospel by advocating for religious liberty, the sanctity of life, and marriage in the family. Um, I'm in in, uh, ADF's Washington, D.C. office, and there I serve as the director of our Center for Religious Schools. Uh, The mission of that center within ADF is to defend and advance the religious freedom of Christ-centered K-12 schools, universities, and seminaries, and I've been practicing religious liberty law full-time for about 20 years now. Long time, and we've had a lot to fight about. What is the main issue right now before the Supreme Court concerning these nonprofit organizations? They are, my understanding is, is that the ACA mandates that they must provide birth control, including abortion, abortion-inducing drugs, to their students and employees. Is this correct? Yeah, it is correct. Uh, The main issue is whether the government can force religious institutions to have to choose between violating their sincerely held religious beliefs or paying enormous and unsustainable fines. More specifically, what the government is doing is that it's telling religious nonprofits like our clients in Pennsylvania and Oklahoma and the organizations represented by by our friends, uh, other legal entities, that they must provide 
drugs and devices that they deem to be morally impermissible. Now, my clients are, are pro-life Christian organizations. They believe that abortion is wrong. They believe that they should not be involved in any scheme that results in an abortion. And the government is forcing them to do, some, to do exactly that, to participate in such a scheme by providing through their insurance plans drugs and devices that can prevent the implantation of a very young human being in the uterine wall. They resisted this based on a federal statute that protects religious freedom uh, that was passed almost unanimously by the Congress back in the 90s called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the court will decide whether the government is violating our religious freedom and whether if they are, that violation is justified by some state interest. Now, I think the government's defense on this is that they're not actually requiring these organizations per se to provide the abortion-inducing drugs. They're saying that, well, all you have to do is have a third party doing it, therefore it's off your conscience. Is that how they're, they're defending it? Well, they're saying that, but that's not true. It is true that third parties are involved, but third parties are always involved in some sort of scheme to provide abortion. Uh, you know, in this case, pharmacists are involved, doctors who prescribe the drugs are involved, the drug companies who manufacture the drugs are involved. The most important thing is not that others are involved, but that we're involved, that our clients are involved, that these religious institutions are involved, and that their role is indispensable. The government has been long mischaracterizing the nature of our role, saying that, you know, we're just, uh, allow we just have to get out of the way and allow others to, to provide the abortifacients. That is just simply a false characterization of, of what's happening. The drugs and devices will not flow unless we do the things the government forces us to do, things that we don't want to do, things that we believe sincerely violate our religious beliefs. And the institutions that are opposing this, the religious institutions, and I might add the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has the same stand on this, is that the Bible and Scripture is unequivocal on this. Abortion is wrong. We cannot permit it. If somebody else does it, it's their sin. But we can't do it, and we cannot aid and abet it. And essentially, this is what we're being forced to do. Yeah, and the key thing is the government is second-guessing our religious and moral analysis. It's obviously the case that no one at our clients is actually being forced to perform the abortion or administer the drugs and devices that, that cause abortions. But that's, that's not the only thing that's prohibited by our faith. Uh, every moral system has a, uh, a, an understanding of when you're participating in a broader scheme that results in evil, when you are morally responsible or morally culpable. And the government is essentially saying, you know what, your role isn't big enough to, for you to be culpable. Your moral assessment, your religious conclusion about your role is simply wrong, therefore you lose. That's the government's, the essence of the government's very remarkable and dangerous position in this case. The government essentially then is trying to rule on, the, on theological matters. You know, the Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years. We've been around for 500. We say this is wrong. Our scriptures always said it wrong. Suddenly now the government is saying, well, your scripture is not saying that. That's exactly correct, and I think in some ways that's the most dangerous thing about this case. If the Supreme Court agrees with the government, it will be free to second-guess our religious beliefs. It will be free to, to second-guess our moral analysis. That is very dangerous, and it's, 
it's, it's exactly what the Supreme Court said in the Hobby Lobby case that the government may not do. And we're hopeful that the court will follow that precedent, apply the same standard, and rule the same way in favor of religious freedom. Now, what is the difference between the current case that uh, the ADF is involved in and the Hobby Lobby case? Because we won Hobby Lobby, where the Supreme Court said, yeah, indeed, these people are following their conscience. We can't force them to provide abortion-inducing drugs to their employees. What's the difference here? Yeah, in, the government has offered up folks two ways to comply, to comply with the HHS abortion pill mandate. The Hobby Lobby case involved method number one, and this case involves method number two. So they are different, but they're the same. In both instances, the government is requiring us to comply with the mandate. We are not exempt from the mandate. We have to comply. And, the, and in each case, the party in question, whether it be Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood or Geneva College and Southern Nazarene in this case, have concluded that that, that, that mechanism of compliance violates their religious beliefs. The government has created essentially a, a shell game under which a couple of more parties are involved in the mechanism by which abortifacients flow to members of our community. When the government did that, we had a question to answer, a moral and legal, I'm sorry, a moral and religious question, whether the government's alternative means of complying with the mandate was morally permissible. In other words, is what they're now offering somehow changed the moral calculus? And our clients uniformly decided that no, this is not meaningful, this is not significant. They have not really changed anything when you get right down to it. So in some ways the cases are the same, but they're different uh, in the way that we comply, but we are still required to comply. And we believe that Hobby Lobby stands for the proposition that the government simply can't make you comply uh, with this mandate. Well, what are the nationwide implications here? Say we win, say we lose. What are the implications of both cases? Yeah. If we win, and we obviously hope that we do, this, it would not invalidate the mandate generally. It wouldn't sort of create freedom uh, for those who are laboring under this mandate who haven't challenged it. So it's not going to be essentially taking out a piece of Obamacare. It would provide uh, protection to those that have challenged the mandate and those who might challenge it going forward in the wake of such a decision. It also would set a positive precedent on how courts should undertake their assessment of religious liberty claims. If we win, it will almost certainly be because the court rejected the government's argument that it's legitimate for them to second-guess our religious beliefs. So it would have a positive effect in that way as well. On the other hand, I think a loss would be very troubling. Uh, for the most, most directly, all of the plaintiffs, all 37 parties that are in front of the Supreme Court right now, unless they prevail under some alternative legal theory, which they've asserted in the lower courts and haven't yet been ruled on, all of those will be required to face a choice. They will have to decide whether to comply with the mandate, contrary to their religious convictions, or to defy the mandate and suffer enormous unsustainable fines that run into the six and seven figures. The other negative consequence would be that I believe that a, a defeat would embolden uh, 
both the federal government itself and state governments that wish to force religious organizations to uh, to uh, include in their health plans things that violate their religious beliefs. That's that's already happening. Uh, the state of California is forcing every employer, religious or not, church or not, to include elective abortions in their health plans. And I think we're going to see more of that if we lose. And we're working vigorously to prevent that outcome. And we pray that the Supreme Court will get this right. We uh, want to invite our listeners to comment or ask questions on this. Uh, they can call in at uh, the St. Louis area at area code 314-821-0850. Outside the St. Louis area in North America, toll-free number is 800-730-2727. Or contact us by email at publicsquare at kfuo.org. That's publicsquare at kfuo.org. Mr. Baylor, one of the uh, big changes that has happened recently that has an enormous impact on this case is the death of Antonin Scalia. Justice Scalia was a strong defender of the Constitution and of religious liberty. He was a steadfast light in this darkness. Now, he's gone, and that leaves us with a very dangerously divided Supreme Court right now. We've got four liberals, we've got three good uh, conservatives, and uh, one who's perhaps a bit, I'll use the phrase, squishy. How are we looking at this now? What is the implication of this? Well, we're, of course, uh, saddened both professionally and personally by the death of Justice Scalia, and we, we obviously send condolences out to his family. Uh, his death could have an impact upon uh, this case that's now pending before the court. Uh, the vote in the Hobby Lobby case that we just talked about was five to four, uh, with the, the four justices that are considered conservative, including Justice Scalia, voting with the majority, along with Justice Kennedy, and the four liberal justices voted against Hobby Lobby and for the government. Uh, so the question is, you know, how is this case going to come out? Uh, one outcome is that a, you get a clear majority on one side or the other, five, three, six, two, seven, one, eight, zero. That. That could happen, and we're hopeful that uh, at least five justices will find persuasive the arguments that we've made and will follow, follow the precedent in Hobby Lobby, which says don't second-guess the religious claimants' religious beliefs. So we're hopeful that that outcome will happen. It's certainly impossible when you have eight members of the Supreme Court or any even number that you'll have an equally divided court. Uh, if that happens, and I'm not saying that it will, but it's certainly reasonable to speculate about that, the court essentially has two options. It can affirm by an equally divided court. In essence, they leave in place the decision below that the losing party is appealing. In all seven cases before the Supreme Court right now, the government won and the religious organizations lost. So if the court affirms by an equally divided court, it will leave in place all of those defeats that uh, the seven groups of plaintiffs uh, suffered. We don't like that option, of course. Um, the other option, and I think there's abundant historical precedent for this, and I also think it's the best course of action for the court to take in the event it faces a 4-4 vote, is to schedule the case for re-argument next term when there are nine justices. And we've seen that happen in other circumstances that resemble uh, this one somewhat. And obviously, if that is the, the path that the court chooses to take, 
the uh, identity of the ninth justice, which is, of course, dependent upon the identity of the next president, could be enormously significant. It may not be, but it certainly could be. And, of course, President uh, Obama has said that he will make an appointment. Of course, the Senate doesn't have to confirm it. In fact, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's indicated that they won't. But certainly there's going to be a lot of pressure to approve an Obama administration appointee. And he's already appointed two justices who are certainly on the far left side of the the spectrum. Of course, now with the election coming up, it's uh, really up in the air. We're facing uh, two candidates on the Democrat side who are uh, liberal to progressive, even socialist in one case. And uh, the Republican uh, lineup is certainly somewhat confused. We don't know who's going to be emerging here. It's going to be an interesting period. What things should we look for in the upcoming campaign? What questions should we as listeners and voters ask about these people who are running for the presidency and who will make these decisions? Right. You know, one of one of the, the uh, beneficial consequences of the sad event of Justice Scalia's death is that it highlights the question of what are judges for and what kind of judges we want the president to appoint and what kind of judges do we think that the various candidates will appoint. I think that's a that's a critical question. Uh, when President Obama was running for the highest office in the land, he pretty clearly made it clear that he wanted the sort of justices that he ended up appointing, ones that on, on big questions, close questions, uh, socially significant questions, he didn't say it this way, but that he wanted judges that would rule the liberal way. Um, conservative presidents and Republican presidents, I think, have been more likely to appoint justices that follow the rule of law and take things where they go and not try to impose their political preferences uh, upon the country, uh, defer to the legislative process. And uh, certainly at ADF, we believe that uh, that approach to judging, that approach to constitutional interpretation is the right one, that democratically elected legislatures are the bodies that ought to be making uh, big decisions about policy and that the court shouldn't uh, invent rights or doctrines uh, that are not rooted in the Constitution's text. So I think the role of the American people is to ask candidates to think about what, what uh, to ask candidates what kind of judges they will appoint and what they think the role, role of judges in our, in our system ought to be. Well, you brought up a point on constitutional philosophy. There are really two schools of thought here. One is the originalist school that says that the Constitution is what it is and should be interpreted thusly. There's the other side that calls, that calls it a, a living document that says that somehow the Constitution will evolve with society and will, and will evolve with age and can be interpreted in different ways. Now, Justice Scalia was a strong originalist. In fact, I think he said specifically, the Constitution is not an organism. It is a legal text that means today exactly what it meant when it was adopted. And this is one of the big challenges, I think. It, it is. And, um, you know, our founders never envisioned a system where uh, five people in black robes sitting on a bench in Washington, D.C., could resolve some of the most momentous questions that our country has faced, the scope of religious freedom, the definition of marriage, the proper relationship between church and state. And these nominations have become so high stakes in part because the court has exceeded its role 
it's become far more important than really it ought to be. And so we're, we're praying that the court will uh, discipline itself and restore to its proper role and not be the one that's deciding these big questions, but then leaving that to the people and their democratically elected representatives. On the decision of Obergefell, for example, uh, which, which uh, legalized gay marriage, uh, Justices Thomas and Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts were both wrote scathing dissenting opinions, and they're saying exactly what you said, where five unelected people suddenly are deciding some very basic issues about government and about society, and indeed overturning decades and centuries worth of tradition without any judicial or legal cause. They've just done it on their own because they think that's the way it should go. Uh, very dangerous precedent, I think. Well, it, right, and it's it's hard to predict where that where those kind of decisions are going to come from. Um, if judicial rulings are not rooted in the text and history of the Constitution and in precedent, uh, one wonders where the outcomes are coming from. Are they coming from, uh, you know, the cultural winds? Are they coming from the trends in the law? Are they coming from the the opinions of the elites, both in society generally and in the legal culture more narrowly? Are they coming from the, the, the justice's own personal views on these questions? That, you know, the fact that we have to imagine those things as the sources of, of Supreme Court decisions is by itself troubling. That's why it's, I think, fairer and more consistent with our, our American commitment to the rule of law for the Supreme Court to decide cases based on the original a public meaning of the uh, words of the Constitution. Well, both Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas commented on the uh, freedom of religion portion of the First Amendment, noting that there are really two separate clauses. There is the freedom, there is the, uh, the no establishment clause, the establishment clause, a state shall not establish religion. However, there is also the free exercise clause. And I think it was, it was stated explicitly in both of the uh, these dissents that they were disturbed that while the majority said, oh yes, you can teach what you want, they did not reaffirm specifically the free exercise clause, which would, of course, say that we as Lutherans, as Christians, as Catholics, who believe that there is scriptural prohibition against certain things, have to put it aside. Yeah, it, it certainly was troubling that there, there wasn't that reaffirmation of the liberty not just to speak one's faith, but to exercise one's faith. And as you ably pointed out, the uh, the, a very significant part of the First Amendment is, is not just the free speech clause, but the free exercise clause. And this is not just an academic debate. I mean, uh, uh, read the newspaper. It's full of examples where religious liberty is under assault uh, by aggressive advocates and governmental agencies and legislative bodies uh, who disagree with uh, the, the religious beliefs about marriage and sexuality, of traditional religious organizations, and that's why the free exercise is important. It's it's designed for that very situation where the government is overstepping its authority and preventing people from living out their faith in a way, frankly, that is not harmful to society at large. 
So, yeah, you're, you're on to something there. Well, the free exercise clause also does not stop at the church door. We exercise our freedom of religion throughout our everyday lives in business. And, of course, this is another thing that's come under attack lately from the secular side, forcing businesses to do things, and for example, the uh, floral arrangements or making a cake celebrating gay marriage, those things. They've actually forced these people to do these things. They're saying that they cannot exercise their religion in their place of business. Yeah, there was a case out in New Mexico involving a, a photographer and her husband ran a photography business that included photographing weddings and, and helping the couple celebrate and memorialize their, their big day. And they were challenged by a same-sex couple uh, uh, to, to help celebrate that, that ceremony. And the couple was simply unwilling to do that. They, they were well aware of the reality that there were a multitude of other photographers who would have in the area who were, had no objection to um, helping that couple celebrate their commitment ceremony. But they thought that this would be a violation of their own religious beliefs. And when their case got to the New Mexico Supreme Court, where they lost, the, one of the New Mexico Supreme Court judges, in his concurring opinion, basically said that this is the price of citizenship, that if you enter into sort of the public square, you have to give up your religious liberty and your religious freedom. I think he's got it exactly wrong. I think our rights as citizens include the right to exercise our religion, not just on Sunday morning in the sanctuary, but on Monday through Friday and Saturday uh, in, our, in all other aspects of our lives, including our businesses. And you're right, it is a disturbing trend that so many are trying to uh, confine religious liberty to Sunday morning. That's just wrong. And it even seems like it's a targeted uh, targeted event. The people who did go after the florists, the people who did go after the photographer, the people who did go after the uh, cake bakers, these were targeted. They had plenty of other options. They chose these people. Yeah, and, you know, I, you have to concede that religious liberty is often a balancing. You have to balance. I mean, someone doesn't have the right to, you know, commit human sacrifice in the name of religion. There's a higher interest that the government properly advances in uh, respecting human life. But all of this has become dramatically unbalanced. It's really just punishing people for not getting along with the current consensus. Um, it's not analogous to the situation that African Americans faced in the 50s and the 60s, where they were unable in some areas to access uh, hotels and restaurants and the like. Uh, this is quite different from that. Uh, there's a case up in Washington State involving uh, a florist there, and there were literally scores of other florists willing to provide their services for free to the same-sex couple. Uh, so it wasn't a matter of availability of a scarce service. It's really just a matter of the folks on the other side of these issues desiring to punish, to marginalize those who resist the cultural trend on marriage and sexuality. And Jesus did indeed say that there are those who are, we will be punished, we will be persecuted for believing in him and for following his way. Mr. Baylor, I want to thank you very much for being our guest on Free to Be Faithful, and we hope and pray that we will hear more from you and more from your organization in the future. I would like that. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir.